From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is Jeff Korzenik. Jeff is the chief economist for one of the nation's largest commercial banks. For more than 30 years, he's been known in the investment management industry for the clarity and originality he brings to complex challenges. A regular guest on CNBC, Fox Business News, and Bloomberg TV, his insights into the economy, markets, manufacturing, and the workforce are frequently cited in the financial and business press. Jeff is the author of the groundbreaking book, Untapped Talent, on the business case and best practices for hiring people with criminal records, published by HarperCollins Leadership in April 2021. Jeff's writings on economics and public policy have been published in Barron's, Forbes, the Chicago Tribune, and other periodicals. He's testified on Capitol Hill as an expert witness on the use of commodity indexes by pensions and other institutional investors, a leading expert on private sector models and the re-employment of people with criminal records. Jeff is a sought-after public speaker who's presented at the Detroit Economics Club, the Executives Club in Chicago, and for the Los Angeles County's Fair Chance Hiring Initiative. Jeff is a graduate of Princeton University with an A.B. in economics and a certificate of proficiency in Near Eastern Studies. In my conversation with Jeff, we'll talk about his book, Untapped Talent, and the remarkable work being done around the country to find work for the formerly incarcerated. Jeff will describe how the United States is an outlier in the world in terms of the number of people currently in our prison system. He'll explain how this challenge is made worse by a system that makes it nearly impossible for many people who have done their time to find work once they've been released back into society. And he'll let us know how well-thought-out programs for second-chance hiring present a true win-win-win scenario for employers, the newly released, and society at large. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff Korzenik. Jeff Korzenik, thanks for joining me on the Blue Sky Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. So I have read your book, Untapped Talent. I absolutely loved it. Um, And I think one of the things that is unusual about you is your background to come to this work. You are a bank executive, very seasoned, very senior, and, and yet you've written a book about finding jobs for folks coming out of prison. So I'm curious to know, can you tell us about your educational and professional background and then how the heck did you ever wind your way into this sort of work? Well, you know, to me, it doesn't seem as incongruous as it sometimes seems uh, to others. Uh, I have a pretty traditional Wall Street-ish background. Um, First joined Wall Street uh, in the mid-80s, working for E.F. Hutton, uh, came out of an economics degree at Princeton University, and uh, was through a lot of mergers and acquisitions on Wall Street, Uh, grew up in large part on the wealth management side, joined um, a major commercial bank or a super regional bank uh, about 15 years ago and have been with them ever since and was just named the chief economist. Amazing. And so what turned you on to this work? You know, for me, it was really just an outgrowth of the economy. Uh, Back around 10 years ago, the big question was, 
why were so many people missing from the labor force? Because it was clearly slowing U.S. growth. And most economists just kind of took it as, well, it is what it is. And I started asking questions. And I came to realize by virtue of having CEO roundtables in many Midwestern cities and Southeastern cities, um, I kept hearing consistent themes. And one of them was that the inability to find people who would pass a drug test. And I soon realized this was not, as I had initially assumed, pot, but it was rather opioids. And uh, at the time, the opioid epidemic was less well-known in the United States. And the thought was that it was a vague social ill. And I came to understand because of the magnitude of this, that it was actually an economic barrier for the U.S. and a significant one. And once you see that social ills can be so large that they can be economic problems, you can't unsee that. And I came to long-term unemployment, the opioid epidemic, and then criminal justice involvement as the three, three big problems our labor force had. And at the same, around the same time, maybe two years later, I had identified the problem, but hadn't identified a solution. And I happened to go to a restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina called The King's Kitchen, which focuses on taking people with troubled backgrounds, whether criminal records, even homeless, histories of addiction, and uh, getting those people involved in gainful employment. And so I started seeking out other companies that were doing this and realized that there was a model to doing this and a way to go forward. So I started sharing that model. Wow. So the work I'm doing at the Optimism Institute and on this podcast, we're trying to talk to folks like you who are working on big problems with a really optimistic point of view and angle. And I think for our listeners, one important thing to understand is just how big an issue incarceration is in the United States. Sure. I don't think a lot of Americans really have an understanding of what an outlier we are in terms of our prison population and its size. Can you give us some guidance on that and sort of shape it for us? Yeah. I mean, the numbers are, are staggering uh, you, and there's so many ways to cut it. You can say they're, you know, million and a half to 2 million incarcerated at any given time in the United States. That's come down quite a bit uh, from, you know, sort of a two and a half million level. Um, but that really only tells a little bit of the picture because once you have been incarcerated or even not having been incarcerated, but have a criminal record, you have enormous burdens and barriers to re-entering the workforce. And those are in many cases lifelong, even for minor offenses. So other ways of looking at this number are over 70 million people have a criminal record of some kind. Now that can be all over the place. It can uh, include uh, people who were found innocent of charges, include charges that were dropped. In some states, that might even include um, traffic violations. But the really hardcore barriers are those with felony convictions. 19 million Americans have felony convictions. It's a staggering number. And, uh, you know, I think it's quite telling also that you hear felony co conviction and you tend to think the worst possible crime half of those with convictions, felony convictions, were convicted of crimes of such minor threat to public safety that didn't even have to serve a prison term. So just huge numbers. And, and I believe in your book, Untapped Talent, you mentioned uh, one in three African-American men have a felony conviction on the record. It's no secret to any of us that the, the burdens of this aftermath of a conviction don't fall equally on all communities. 
And without saying, you know, it should or shouldn't have, just to observe that one in three black men in America has a felony conviction means that it so saturates some communities that you lose the, the history of working families, right? If you can't get ahead in one level, you know, one generation, the next generation doesn't get to see, you know, how do you dress appropriately? How do you navigate a tough boss? How do you navigate a tough coworker? All these things get lost and just compound this problem. Jeff has quite a personal story to tell. He goes from an Ivy League education to a traditional Wall Street to banker path, and in a roundabout way, goes from seeing a looming labor shortage to realizing that a solution could be creating a pathway for people coming out of prison to find employment. And what I notice is the passion in his voice as he moves from describing his early career to the work he's doing today, where he's seeing second chance hiring efforts work. And you'll hear more about that soon. And he's come to care so much about this issue that he's even taken the time to write a book about it while maintaining a very full-time job at his bank. I think it's really fun to hear from someone who's taking on such a daunting challenge with so much enthusiasm and passion. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted to ask Jeff about what seems to a lot of us to be an inherent unfairness to the practice that so many companies follow to not hire convicted felons. And you said something important, I think, because one of the things that a lot of us struggle with is this notion that, you know, you do your time, you have a 10-year sentence, and you should come out and re-enter the world, and yet it turns into a life sentence in some ways because you check the box on, a, on an employment form and you don't get hired. And so then what do you do? You can't get a job. You may turn back to your old ways. Before you know it, you're getting in trouble again. It contributes to the recidivism rate. So it seems to me that that this removing the stigma of what it is to be an ex-convict or a felon uh, it, joining the workforce is a huge part of what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, you know, I see this as not just helping the employers we bank, which it is, solve their labor shortage problem, but it's also helping the communities in which we serve. So, I, you know, what better role for a banker? And the way mm -hmm. it helps those communities is not just by making them more prosperous with, with employment, but it makes them safer. Because as you pointed out, people who are given no alternative, no legal alternative, turn to other alternatives. Incredible. Um, one of the things that really struck me in, in your book was the work that some of these companies are doing, and you included by providing your book to folks who are in prison, to create motivation for people while they're doing their time. I found that really eye-opening so that you're, you're in prison um, but you are helping coach people on, I have a quote here, you, you say in your book, you tell folks in prison, you are not a burden, you are a resource, a resource for your family, a resource for your friends, for your community, for your country, not a burden. I found that remarkable because you go all the way into the folks when they are in prison, when they are incarcerated and try to create that hope and optimism as they're coming out. I, I found that very powerful. Thank you. When I, when I first started working on the book. I envisioned my audience being CEOs of companies, particularly middle market companies where the CEO can make very direct decisions on, on what kind of hiring they're doing. But I realized that there's a much broader audience. And one piece of that audience that I wanted to have hear this message and see this work were people who are currently incarcerated. Because people who are currently incarcerated know once they have that, that you know, black mark of a felony conviction, their life 
for the rest of their life just got a lot harder. And I, I first started writing about this publicly in uh, 2018. I, uh, Barron's, uh, the financial magazine, published an article I wrote about this. And I started getting letters from prison. So th- there aren't many bankers who routinely get letters from prison, but <laughs> I do. And one of them that really struck me was uh, someone in a federal facility in Colorado wrote me a note, didn't want anything, just wanted to say thank you. Uh, and uh, he said, your article in Barron's hangs on the wall of our prison library, and it gives all of us here hope. And I never forgot that. And I was approached by uh, a uh, Steve Smith, who, who was a principal at Brandywine Investments, who uh, uh, heard some of the work I was doing and said, how can I help? And Steve very generously um, donated the money to fund sending 500 of these books to prison libraries. And which is a trickier thing than you would think. So, for instance, I had to go back to my publisher um, and change the contract, uh, HarperCollins. We'd originally contracted for a hardcover book, as you would expect for a business book like this. Hardcovers aren't typically allowed inside prisons. It's feared they can be weaponized. So now it's a paperback book. Um, (laughs) And then you can't just mail it off to prisons because very often it'll just end up in the wastebasket. Uh, so I worked with a wonderful um, uh, nonprofit, Books Inside. Toby Lafferty is the principal there. She has, over the years, established pipelines of how to get books into prison and make sure they get in the hands of the residents of these facilities. So even you know what you quickly find in working with the criminal justice system is even the simplest things are really complicated to actually accomplish. But um, this is one mission accomplished uh, thanks to Steve's generosity, and then I donated 100 books as well. Well over 500 of these books have made it into prison libraries. There's some facilities that are creating programming around this. And the important part to me was to make sure people know that they're business people who value them and think of them as more than their worst mistake. And that was a really important message for me to to get across. I found this part of our discussion to be particularly fascinating. Not only does Jeff decide to try to enlighten CEOs and corporate hiring officials about second chance hiring, but he realizes there's an opportunity to create hope in the prisoners themselves. And here's an example of where optimistic persistence can lead to creativity. He's got a book, but it's a hard copy and that's against the rules. So he figures out a way to get paperbacks published. Books get thrown out when they're sent to prisons, he finds out. So he figures out a way around that. It's really inspiring to hear how he overcame so many obstacles to pursue his vision. And getting back to Jeff, I wanted to ask him more about what the role of prisons and incarceration is supposed to be. And it seems to me that what you're doing is is a move towards rehabilitation. One of the things, as, as someone who's not involved in the criminal justice system, looking in from the outside, it seems there's always this question is, what is the system for? There's obviously the the punishment factor. You've done a crime. You need you should be punished. You you are removed from society because you might pre- present a safety hazard. But at least there seems to me there should be, and there used to be. Maybe there is still more than I realize a, a rehabilitation part of this. That while you're there, um, hopefully you're working on self improvement, and then when you get out, you can be a productive member of society again. It seems to me that what you're doing is reaching in and, and assisting with that rehabilitation process? You know, I certainly like to think so. I, you know, I hope that um, it inspires people who are in these uh, positions to 
make better decisions about how they want to invest in their future or that they even want to invest in their future. Um, ultimately, you know, it's a book focused on employers, but but I hope it inspires people to um, to make good use of the time that they they have. And uh, some prisons offer more opportunities than others um, to to rebuild oneself. But there's a large number of nonprofits, sometimes faith based things like prison ministry that are all there to help. But people need to feel that there's there's a light at the end of that long, long and very dark tunnel. So let's talk about employers. Some of these may be obvious, but what, what are the barriers? If you or someone pitches this idea, this concept to an employer, what, what are the first reactions that you get? You know, there, there are three, they really boil down to three objections. The one is this kind of safety slash liability uh, concern. Will, will someone I hire with this record do something wrong that harms my business, a person, a customer, an employee? And do I have not just beyond the harm done, do I have associated legal liability with that? Objection number two is, can people with records really be good employees? It's a quality question. And question number three uh, that gets raised is, uh, is there reputation risk in doing this? And there are answers to all of these and good answers, but you really have to surface these questions. And one of the things that I hope I've contributed to the nonprofit community is not try to sugarcoat any of this. Don't, you know, the, there's a lot of nonprofits that are involved in this concept of re-entry, getting people from prison into, into jobs. And uh, in some cases, th- there was a lot of glossing over, don't worry about that, don't worry about it. You have to worry about it. That's a reasonable business consideration, but you have to worry about it and make intelligent business-based decisions. And that's what you know my work tries to encourage. And it seemed like once you get people over that initial hurdle, a lot of this is just basic traditional hiring practices, tough, tough interviews. Um, and, you know, you're not just going to take anybody who's just gotten out of prison. And then also I was impressed um, that some of the work you've done with trying to make sure that they have a successful entry into the workplace. So things like asking them, are there certain things that might trigger you at work? Are there, is there certain, are there, what can we do to make this a more hospitable environment for you entering. So you're, because I would imagine, especially as a company starts this, there could be a huge stigma following that person because everybody knows that, you know, and and so the pressure on that person to succeed and do well is immense and they already have enough pressures in their lives. So it seems like you, you take that extra step to really try to make this a successful transition as best you can. You know, I think it's important to share with your listeners that I had the easiest job in the world. I just copy what's been done by successful <laughs> employers, right? right? I, right. I didn't have to create any of this. And uh, some in, have been incredibly, well, really all of them have been incredibly generous in sharing their techniques. Um, I, I even share in the appendix of the book and uh, reference to what you had brought out. Uh, there's a company in Ohio called JBM Packaging that uh, started this reluctantly. It's been a huge business success for them. They've expanded because they haven't had a labor shortage. Um, They've been having record years of growth. And they shared with me some of their intake documents and their coaching documents. And it's an appendix, one of the appendices in the book, uh, just reprints those documents and they, they generously shared those. It turns out is in concept, it is a traditional hiring model. You got to find people who are a good fit your, for your business, and you got have to give them the tools that thrive. The challenge here is: think about, for instance, the interview process. All you may know about someone is their crime, 
or the fact that they've been in prison. How do you judge someone like that? And how do you put them on a fair footing compared to a more traditional candidate? And this is the trick of this. And it turns out that there are ways to do that if you understand the process. And it leans very heavily on uh, a pipeline of talent and and, uh, third-party endorsements, typically re-entry organizations, nonprofits that have gotten to know a person and can attest to character and can attest to the, the grit, you know, that sort of perseverance and resiliency that is a hallmark of so many of these candidates. Hard for a business to do that alone in the course of, say, a 45-minute interview. Uh, and then the, the other part is this onboarding. You want your employees to thrive. Anyone you hire, you've gone to great trouble, no matter the candidate, the most traditional candidates, you want them to stick around and to do well. And we in the business community are very used to how do you support someone like me, you know, well-educated, certain level of technological skills, certain amount of social capital for navigating situations. The people who come out of the criminal justice system typically bear some unique burdens associated with criminal justice, like time to meet parole officers, things like that. But most of them also come from backgrounds with very little social capital. They don't know what they're supposed to do to be good employees. They're very willing to be do that and to undertake that. But things that you and I might take for granted, that many of your listeners might take for granted, they might need some assistance uh, learning. But, but it's an investment. And the payback is extraordinarily committed employees who care about their job and are very loyal to their employer. That's a recipe for profitability. Right. You, you started your um, explanation of how you got into this by talking about labor shortage. And one of the reasons there's labor shortage is, is high turnover. And, and it seems that the, the data from the work that you've done is that when you get the right candidate and they're onboarded well, you, you wind up with an incredibly loyal, hardworking, committed employee. Yeah. And this is, you know, there, there's a limited number of studies, but they all point in the same direction. And uh, turnover reductions depend somewhat on the industry. Sometimes it's just a couple of percent. Sometimes it's 50% better than industry, sometimes even more. So it, it is clear. And, and if you think about it, um, if someone gave, took a big chance, you know, which is perceived as taking a chance on you or gave you an opportunity when no one else would give you an opportunity, you're going to be pretty loyal to that person. And that's, and that's where it shows up. And also people are so eager. And I think all of us can relate to this. And it's just human nature. When any of us fall down and do something that is what we consider beneath ourselves and not living up to the standards we've set for ourselves, people of character pick themselves up and redouble their efforts to prove they are more than their worst mistakes. And that is true uh, whether it's an action that involved the criminal justice system or not, people of character try to be their best selves and redouble those efforts. And this is a case where they can redouble those efforts and and to the benefit of their employers. And it seems one of the beautiful things about this model is as it starts working, it keeps working better because one of the things that companies have done, they establish relationships with the administration in a prison or a halfway house, and they almost become placement officers. They, they, they help identify the, the folks who are about to be released and who has potential and who seems to really be on a good path and who they think might be a great employer. That's a pretty, pretty interesting part of the model. 
there's this snowballing effect of success. You really create a virtuous cycle uh, here. And it's not just in those referrals, right? If you're known as a good second chance employer, you start getting, or fair chance employer, you start getting referrals from the community, from parole officers, from halfway houses, from uh, nonprofits, and you get essentially the cream of the crop. Um, which is wonderful, but it also works better within your own company. So if you're hiring and there may be some reluctance uh, on the part of, uh, you know, that you are doing this uh, among other employees, that wears down over time as people see the success. And again, I'm going to go back to the example of uh, JBM packaging, uh, where there was a lot of skepticism. It took some great resolute leadership on the part of Marcus Sheenshang, the CEO and his, his uh, executive team. And uh, now it's become part of the culture there uh, where employee, the other employees have even remarked that this cohort is among the hardest working employees there and they respect them and uh, encourage them and take pride in the fact that they are helping people rebuild their lives as well. Jeff says so many things here that are worth underscoring. First, it's great to learn about how companies are sharing their best practices with others. While the world of business can be competitive, in areas like second chance hiring, there's no reason why they can't share what they've learned. And the example here of a company allowing Jeff to reprint their intake documents is inspiring. Jeff also does a great job of reminding us that we're all better than the worst things we've ever done and the people of character try to pick themselves back up to be their best selves. And with what he describes as the snowballing effect of success, second chance hirers begin to identify who these high character people are and receive referrals from throughout the criminal justice system, from people within the prisons to parole officers and nonprofits, all of whom provide ideas of people they think have the best chance for success. It's really a beautiful model. I next talked to Jeff about his advocating for people outside the system to get a better sense for what it's like inside prisons and the range of people who are inmates. For so many of us, our images of that life are provided by TV and the movies, but the reality is often quite different. One of the things you've, you've spoken about and written about is part of the stigma of folks who have been incarcerated is you know, someone like me, my image of prisons is from the movies and TV, and it's usually pretty unpleasant. And they're usually all a lot of really awful people in there. And, and, and you've advocated for folks to actually go to a prison, visit, see what it's like, see what the life like is like there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, and, you know, I haven't been in that many facilities the year I was going to enter a lot of them and visit a lot. It was 2020 and something seemed to get in the yeah, way, yeah. Uh, uh, of course. But what I found personally, uh, my first uh, uh, prison I visited was in uh, Jackson, Michigan, um, and uh, others have visited prisons that have spoken to, and then I've been to others since. But um, it's a humanizing experience, and you meet people. Um, you know, there's all, like like everywhere in society, you have all sorts of people. There are people you don't want to meet, and you, you're not going to meet them in a prison visit. Um, these are controlled environments. But for instance, uh, in Michigan, they have uh, several Prisons have what are called vocational villages where they are doing uh, industry accepted credential training 
in things like uh, carpentry, framing, in electrical repair, auto repair. And I went to uh, one of those facilities and had the opportunity to speak to people who were in the CNC machining training program and, and others. And you realize that, you know, these aren't criminal masterminds. They're just people who made mistakes, typically in youth, and uh, they are no less human for it. And there's a quote in, in your book, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think it was someone at, at JBM. Um, we talked about onboarding and the quote was, this work is about having a whole lot of compassion and empathy, but having an insane amount of boundaries. So in other words, this is not, we know that this is not the easiest thing. You, you mentioned how many of these folks are incarcerated at a young age. So let's say you go into prison at 19 and you, you serve 10 years, you come out and you're 29. You have not been in a workforce, most likely. You, you might have finished high school. Not been in the workforce. Might not have ever used a smartphone. Yeah, the world's a little different than it was when you went in. Yeah. So, so what kind of boundaries does a, does a company doing this? What, so if, if we have employers listening to this, what kind of things should that once, let's say we've gotten them over the hurdle to, to, to consider this, what kind of boundaries do you have to put in place or do you recommend putting in place in a, in a corporation? Each company has to find its own way there. But, but typically, you still have every right as an employer to say when work hours are and to hold people accountable to um, showing up on time and doing a good job and not um, abusing substances and you know all the sort of things. But at the same time, you have to have this sympathy of perhaps the first person someone didn't show up on time no one ever told them in life that you're supposed to show up on time. And that's where that empathy meets the rules. And you absolutely, as an employer, have to run a productive enterprise. And that means having rules and boundaries of performance. But at the same time, when you're dealing with a population that have may have never been told explicitly the rules that somewhere other people like you and I took them in. Yeah. Maybe you give a one-time a mulligan, right? One employer told told me a, a company in Florida, everyone deserves a mulligan. And and so what what the actual experience has been, employers have found that someone's car broke down. This is a true example. Someone's car broke down. They didn't have a cell phone. They didn't have a credit card. They didn't have AAA. So they just sort of assumed, I guess I don't work anymore. Instead of knowing to call in and say, here's what happened. And, you know, again, that em empathy versus boundaries. Um, if someone does call in and say, my car broke down, I don't know what to do. And, and think about the relationship of trust you have to build right. to get someone who's vulnerable about everything in their life to pick up the phone and admit I'm helpless and don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Then you might have to help that person with carpooling or a ride or pick up the cost of an Uber one day. Uh, in some cases, employers will make micro loans to employees who've, who've, who've proven they're good employees. Um, all of those things are part of the empathy. But at the end of the day, you also need the boundaries that you w are fair to all of your employees, you know, show up on time, do a good job, be drug free, all of those things and, and standards of interaction with each other, you know, civility, professionalism, all of those things you still enforce. You're not giving up any of those, but you're just showing a little bit of empathy to people who've never been taught the rules or aren't financially enabled to do some of the things that we take for granted. 
it really does take some imagination because you, although I can think about even, you know, young people getting out of high school and college who haven't been in prison, they don't know about credit cards and, you know, insurance policies. And I mean, so imagine someone who's been behind bars for 10 years. I mean, my goodness. Right. And and we might sit, take an 18 year old and take them aside. Right. But to learn to do that with a 40 year old who spent 15 years in prison is a different thing and a different awareness level. Exactly. We, um, I, I'm uh, active with a group in Chicago, the Corporate Coalition of Chicago, which is running a fair chance hiring cohort. They've got a good dozen companies, including some brand name companies as well as some local middle market companies trying to learn how to do this well. And one of the things we went through, and this is kind of taken right from the book, a um, re-entry um, experience where, so what does someone coming out of prison have to do just to be able to show up your to your door as an employee, a viable employee? And um, we did the short version of this. It was 25 minutes or so, and it was eye-opening. And you realize all the barriers that people coming out of prison face and again, it's not just people in prison, it's people with felony convictions who never had to serve time in a prison, but all these barriers that people have to face before they can be a viable employee, which means, conversely, that the person who is showing up at your door, who is job ready, has conquered a mountain of obstacles, which means that they are a person of character, right? They've faced down these obstacles to get to the door to your door because they want to work and want to be good employees. Absolutely. Thinking about it, so you, you've been in 15 years and you're in prison on a Tuesday and you're, re you're released on a Wednesday. Do you have the clothing you need to wear to the interview? Where are you going to stay? Where I mean, I don't I'm sure there's some outplacement support when you leave prison, but I don't know how much it is. And like you said, the world is so different than when you went in. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look, there's such a thing as gate money. You are given money when you leave prison, typically a bus ticket to get to your, to your place where you're going to be paroled out to. And um, I think the most generous state in the country is California with $200. And some states are $50. Um, so when you talk to people, I, I went from, you know, zero to 60 in, in terms of formerly incarcerated friends in my <laughs> life. And, and they have been my incredibly generous in being open about their experiences. But, you know, one friend and, and he helped me write the reentry chapter. And it's much, much of the chapter in the book that talks about this journey outside the prison gates to employment is, is his sharing his personal experience. And it's, you know, it's obviously attributed to him in, in, in the book, but his brother gave him a used flip phone and bought him some clothing. He, um, a uh, family member picked him up and drove him to the halfway house because they stopped for lunch. He almost missed the check-in period, which would have been a violation of parole. There's a very short window of to get from one place to the other. Um, and then you're sharing a place, you know, they had a constant problem with even getting, you know, you couldn't get toilet paper in the place and, and things you brought may be confiscated under the rules of the house. So existing residents share and, you know, you have people overstuffed into rooms it is a tough journey. Um, there are exceptions, but by and large, it's a really, um, the, the odds are in many ways stacked against people. And, uh, and it's not just getting the first job, it's then getting advancement. All of the time, these are, these are barriers, not nonstop punishment for one-time actions that th in theory, people have already done their time. 
Right. So that brings me back to what we were talking about before with this this box that is often on an employment form and and I that you check with it says you're an ex you're a felon or had a conviction. There have been movements, I believe, in other states, in several states, to ban the box movement to make that illegal to put that on it. Do you have a Do you have a position on that idea? Is that something you support, or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm I'm sorry to say that 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 has not proven to be very helpful. And in fact, there's a body of evidence that says that state mandated rules banning the ba- box actually have unintended adverse consequences. Um, if you have an employer that is dead set against hiring someone with a prison record, they might look for, if they can't ask about it up front, they might try to find you know, proxies. Well, I don't want anyone from this neighborhood. Um, I don't want anyone who's got a gap in employment um, because maybe that meant they were in prison. And so you end up not just keeping the barriers in place for people who actually fit into the category of formerly incarcerated, but you're creating new barriers for people who might not have a criminal record. And again, I, you know, I'm not religious about this. Unfortunately, in our partisan times, ban the box has become almost this, you know, if you're for it, you're a good person. If you're against it, you're a bad person. I'm for whatever works. And state mandated has not been, has had very mixed success. What I do tell employers is once you are ready and truly committed to offering fair chance employment, you can voluntarily take the box off because voluntarily removing that box that asks about whether you have a criminal record is a strong sign to job hunters that you are not going to discriminate against them because of a record. And so it, it's, you know, there are other things they can do. I often recommend a, there's a job board called honestjobs.com, which is specifically targeted to this population. If you want to send the message that you are truly open You do things like post jobs on that, take the box off, make a statement about how you are a fair chance employer. All of those things send the right signal. That's important because people with criminal records get disappointed time and time again. They will apply job after job, be completely qualified or overqualified for jobs and face, you know, it's it's not uncommon to have 40 or 50 rejections in a row from low level jobs for people who are otherwise quite qualified. And so it's helpful when employers send the signal that we really will consider you and give you fair consideration. And voluntarily removing the box is one of the ways they can provide that signal. I think what Jeff says about considering the hurdles these job candidates have cleared to simply get in front of the employer is really important. So many of us take so much for granted. Having the transportation, appropriate clothing, handed down experience from parents or friends about the interview process that we don't properly appreciate what it might take for others without the advantages that we've had. And I also appreciated Jeff's comments about ban the box movements. While the jury might still be out on whether government mandates here are helpful, there's nothing stopping companies from doing this on their own. And I think that an optimistic approach to tackling just about any issue is one that doesn't wait for mandates or permission from others. You just go out and do what you think is right. Getting back to our conversation, now that we've talked about employers and second chance employees, I asked Jeff about how we should think about the impact of these practices on another group, fellow workers who will now be alongside these new people who are entering their company 
as colleagues. So we've talked a lot about employers and hiring officers. How do you think about and what are the best practices on this with employees, fellow employees who are not incarcerated, who work in a company and they get wind of this idea that they're going to start hiring people from prison? And one could imagine that there are some people who have a more favorable outlook on that than others. How How is that handled? Do Are these folks, do people know that they have this background? Are they are the other employees coached on this? What's the best practice? So typically no one would know an individual's background. The, the problem becomes, particularly in smaller companies, that you know Google lives forever. And people, if they know that the company is doing this, they might start Googling people's backgrounds, um, sometimes how they get there, um, uh, if they arrive on a shared van that's provided by a reentry nonprofit, that's a pretty good giveaway. Uh, so, so it is important to soften the ground a little bit if it's going to be public that, that this is a form of hiring the company is encouraging. And one of the best ways to do that is to provide some context. And I, I think the context uh, is, say, if you look at companies like uh, Kroger, one of the nation's largest employers, grocery store chain, they, they started something called the New Beginnings Program. And it really talks not not focused exclusively on people with criminal records. It's people who need another chance and who have been marginalized from the workforce due to um, deep poverty, perhaps addiction in the past or substance challenges in the past or even a criminal record. That's the context because all of us, um, or most of us, I'd like to say all of us, but practically probably just most of us can envision that other people have led lives that are not like ours, and how would we want to be treated if we came from one of these challenges in our past? And so softening it up uh, rather than saying, we're going to start hiring people with criminal records, you know, that's that's not how you lead the discussion. You should be honest to your employee base, but it's the context that pe- people need to understand. You said something in your in your book, Untapped Talent, that I thought was wonderful, where you, you talked about, like, we all are product of immigration. And you tied that to this. So you said that we're, we're, we're a country of second chances. And I had never thought of it. I've, I've obviously thought about immigration as, as the United States being a second chance, but you actually applied that beautifully, I thought, to what this is like and, and what, what might motivate someone like you to do this work. It, it's absolutely a driving factor for me. Um, I'm the son and grandson of immigrants. Uh, my mother is a essentially a German war refugee with, I, I'm the keeper of my, uh, her parents' passports and uh, they have the big J stamp in them, you know, for you to Jew along, you know, the, the German swastika emblems and um, uh, in accordance with the Nuremberg Accords, every uh, person of Jewish descent's middle name was changed. If you were a woman, you were Sarah. So my grandmother's middle name was Maria on a passport that says Sarah. My grandfather, all male Jews were uh, renamed Israel as their middle name, you know, all these dehumanizing things. And uh, th- that uh, reminds me that uh, people can be in situations through no fault of their own, or in the case of criminal records, sometimes the mistakes of youth. And this country has been, has given my family second chances. My father's side is uh, his parents were penniless immigrants. Um, and We've had every opportunity in this country. That's just what I want for my fellow citizens, no matter the mistakes they might have made in the past. They have to earn them, 
earn these right. opportunities, um, but they should be given the opportunity to earn these opportunities. So as this work evolves and, and as it as you're trying to spread the word through your book and, and your speaking engagements, where are we in the in the potential of this? Is this is this something we we're about 10% to where we're gonna be? Are we halfway there? I mean, it seems to me well, you you called your book Untapped Talent. There's a lot of it, it seems to me, and a lot of people looking for where are we in this process? So given uh, your affiliation with the Optimism Institute, you'll be happy to know I'm incredibly optimistic. Good. But we are very early and uh, we have just scratched the surface of this talent pool. I, I uh, spent a lot of times as an economist focusing on the labor markets. That's just been a passion of mine. This is an outgrowth of that, of course. But I have a broader view and work on projects on how you know Japan has addressed labor shortage issues because they're all the aging population. But this is the big untapped pool. But first, the business community has to recognize that this labor shortage isn't going away. And the fundamental problem that we have is that the baby boomers are increasingly retiring, which means economically that they still continue to demand goods and services, but are increasingly not involved in producing and delivering those goods and services. So that's going to be a 10-year issue where we have this essentially a labor shortage. It, you know, Some years will look better than other years, uh, but it means that we have to, if we're going to continue to grow or get better growth characteristics as a country, we have to dig deeper into our population, not only ensure that every person who is willing and able has an opportunity for a job, but also make sure that we can give them promotions and advancement opportunities and development opportunities so they can contribute to the economy to the greatest degree of their, of their uh, capability. So the business community, though, has not yet gotten to that point. Many of them are shell-shocked, I would say, by the labor shortage, how sudden it came out. Yep. Um, I, I had a, you know, when I submitted my manuscript in June of 2020, the unemployment rate was 11%. Yeah. And you know, there's a paragraph, I think, in the introduction to the book just saying, recessions come and go, but at the end of the day, we're going to have a labor shortage. So that felt like a lot bolder statement then uh, right. than it does now, of course. But the business community is, I, I like to say they're going through that five stages of grief, you know, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief. They're grieving for a once abundant labor supply because most businessmen have ne and women have never known a tight labor market, or it's only lasted for a couple of, you know, a quarter or two quarters. Today, we have 11 million job openings, 6 million job seekers. We've never seen anything like that. So the business community is, you know, they're going through the anger stage, the denial stage, the bargaining stage, the depression stage. We're only just starting to get to acceptance. And when you accept that this labor shortage is real and here to stay, that's when you start looking for other alternatives. And again, I keep coming back to there are lots of alternatives out there, but no opportunity as, is as big as looking at that 19 million people with felony convictions, 70 million people with some 70 plus million people with justice impact. No one has that big a pool of opportunity that's been so overlooked. I think another way this, this could win with employers too is that we know that dynamics have shifted, especially coming out of the pandemic, I think, in the to the favor of employees to employers in terms of power shifts, you know, and demanding to work from home and these other things. And then also for years pre-pandemic, um, younger people really 
want to feel good about where they work. That's right. Whether that's a product they believe in or an ethos or a mission. And it seems to me if, if you can, when you talk about we're the land of second chances, and then I know that I work at a company that is a company of second chances, I feel better about where I work. It seems to me it's another big win for employers to, to make this something that this company feels really good about. As we baby boomers retire the, the workplace, and there aren't that many Gen Xers, um, you know, this is a millennial and Gen Z workforce that we're, we're getting. And to your point, I believe it's Deloitte, which does a survey of attitudes of those were that generation of work or those generations of workers. They clearly want to work in a place that, that does more than generate profits for shareholders. And customers too, consumers want to deal with companies that are doing social good. I see this, the younger generation of workers really embraces this. Um, I get notes from my colleagues, even though this work is outside, uh, the bulk of my, my bank work is, is separate, but I get notes from employees about how meaningful it is that uh, the work I'm doing, I hear this from the employers that I've, I've studied. Um, it's a very engaging practice. And in an age where we spend a lot of time talking about ESG and DEI, this is truly, truly living it. Absolutely. So if, if someone's listening right now and they love what you're saying and they are in a position to do something about it in their company, either as an employer or an employee to run it up the flagpole, where can they go? They should buy Untapped Talent, your book, for sure. Are there are there sources online that sort of can that can you know, give them a cookbook on how the right way to try to do this? Or what, what would you recommend if someone who wants to learn more? So it depends a little bit on the size of the company. Certainly the very largest companies should think about joining the Second Chance Business Coalition, uh, which is kind of mega cap companies. And, and if you look on the, their website, you'll see not only resources for anyone, but you'll also see the list of, of companies that are involved in this. And, and um, so that's one possibility. Uh, but every, just about every level of employer should consider uh, working with SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, the trade association and credentialing organization of the uh, human resource uh, professionals. They have a getting talent back to work certification. Uh, that's very, um, uh, very, very well done and uh, provides a lay of the land. And then connecting with organizations along the way, visiting employers that are in their marketplace that are already doing this. Uh, in the book, I, I, I forgive me for referring to the book, but no, please. it's my book. So uh, <laughs> uh, I have a chapter called uh, Bridging the Box, which talks about steps such as these that, that you can take to actually start building that um, opportunity for your company to uh, to attract talent like this. Another amazing thing, Jeff, is that, as you said, you're early in this and we're all early in this. We don't even know just how beneficial this could be because it seems to me some of the benefits are, are pretty far along, far out there. So in other words, you get out of, you get out of prison, you're 38 years old, um, you know, without job opportunities, you could be back on the street, you could be back in prison. If this works out for that individual, they're now a productive member of society. They might have a spouse, they might have children raised in a, in a home that has more, I mean, the flywheel effect. And then if, if you did nothing else than lower the recidivism rate, it's a huge plus. But there's so many other things that are probably 10, 20, 30 years out from this that could be incredible. And one of the reasons we have such bad outcomes is because we have not necessarily been strategic 
it's been, and I'm very sympathetic to people who work in these nonprofits that serve this population. When you're in a social service nonprofit, you're patching one problem after another and seemingly endless stream of things that are never resolved, just patched. And so it's so tempting to just, let's just get this person hired instead of saying, let's work with an employer, make sure anyone we're sending over is the right fit and is going to, that employer will have a good uh, experience and hire more. All of those things um, are part of the long game. And as you said, it's very much multi-generational. One of the single best indicators of whether a child will ultimately go to prison is if one of their parents went to prison. And so you have to break that cycle somewhere. And the best place to break that is giving opportunities to people who have gone to prison so they can be role models for their families and in their communities. So those communities become safer as well. Um, We've had a vicious cycle in criminal justice in the United States. Second chance employment, fair chance employment is the opportunity. And I think, frankly, the only opportunity to turn this into a virtuous cycle. Well, Jeff, that's an awfully good place to end. I, I have a quote from your book that'll underscore what you just said. When you talked about uh, second chance hiring, the quote is everyone wins. The team member wins because they get a job. The business wins because they get an engaged team member. The community wins because we're not sending someone back to prison. And as I said, I think going out in those later years, this flywheel effect will be tremendous. So. I can't thank you enough for the work you're doing. Um, we will we will put links to everything you mentioned on our social media and try to spread this word. And I just I can't thank you enough. And and if there's any anything you haven't said that you'd like to leave our listeners with, please feel free. Well, I just uh, first of all thank you to you and the Optimism Institute. Uh, this as you can see, this labor shortage makes me very optimistic about our future. And uh, it's a a pleasure for someone involved in economics, the dismal science, (laughs) to be able to talk about win-wins and bipartisan support. So thank you and, and to your listeners for letting me share my research. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeff Korzenik and are as inspired as I am by the work he's doing. If you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to read his book, Untapped Talent. It really is terrific. And I also hope you'll continue to listen to the Blue Sky Podcast, where you will continue to meet great people like Jeff, who are taking on tough societal challenges with an infectious spirit of optimism. And of course, I hope you'll follow the Optimism Institute on social media as well. Until next time, I'm your host, Bill Burke, and thanks for joining me today for this episode of Blue Sky. Blue Sky.